the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to The Dan Proft Show. Thank you for joining us on this uh, Tuesday edition. Uh, follow us at danproftshow.com. Also on social media at Dan Proft Show. Much as uh, was made yesterday of uh, Attorney General Barr authorizing probes into alleged voting irregularities amid the litigation emanating from the Trump campaign. But uh, if you actually read the memo, uh, it is um, certain to calibrate your expectations appropriately. Uh, Some pertinent parts of uh, Barr's memo. Now that the voting has concluded, it's imperative the American people can trust that our elections were conducted in such a way that the outcomes accurately reflect the will of the voters. Although the states have the primary responsibility to conduct and supervise elections under our Constitution and the laws enacted by Congress, DOJ has an obligation to ensure that federal elections are conducted in such a way the American people can have full confidence in their electoral process and their government. He added, I authorize you, talking to U.S. attorneys around the country, I authorize you to pursue substantial allegations of voting and vote tabulation irregularities prior to the certification of elections in your jurisdictions in certain cases. However, it's important to also note, furthermore, any concerns that overt actions taken by the department could inadvertently impact an election are greatly minimized if they exist at all once voting has concluded, even if election certification has not yet been completed. He said alleged voter fraud should only take place in quote-unquote specific instances, hinting the level of apparent evidence will need to be high. He also suggested that, uh, not suggested, he wrote, Explicitly, while most allegations of purported election misconduct are of such a scale that they would not impact the outcome of an election and thus investigation can appropriately be deferred, that is not always the case. So definitely qualified here in other news on the litigation front. Several Republican attorneys general joined a lawsuit challenging mail and ballots in Pennsylvania related to the election, including Kentucky Attorney General Daniel Cameron who said in a statement that the Pennsylvania Supreme Court's ruling allowed absentee ballots to be counted without a legible postmark and overrode unambiguous state law passed by the Pennsylvania legislature. This is something that um, potentially could have serious remedies if a court, a district court, and ultimately probably the Supreme Court were to agree. For a distillation of all of these issues, we're pleased to be joined again by John Yu, the Emanuel S. Heller Professor of Law at the University of California, UC Berkeley, that is, and author of Defender-in-Chief, Donald Trump's Fight for Presidential Power. Professor Yu, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Great to meet you, Dan. Well, let's start with that Pennsylvania case and uh, that Pennsylvania Supreme Court ruling that has been criticized and, and what the Trump campaign is now arguing in federal district court, what uh, what may rise to the level of the Supreme Court, if you think that's where it goes and and what the available remedies are, were a court to agree with the Trump campaign's position. There's two kinds of litigation going on in Pennsylvania, Dan, and I think one could change the outcome in the state and uh, one that I don't know if probably would. The one that I think could change things 
is a case that's been sitting at the U.S. Supreme Court from before Election Day. And this is the issue, the change in the Election Day uh, from essentially from November 3rd to November 6th. And by that, I mean that the state legislature had said that all mail-in ballots had to be in by November 3rd. The state Supreme Court in Pennsylvania said, well, if we get ballots by November 6th and there's no postmark or people dropped it by November 3rd, that's okay too. Now, it's not clear how many ballots were collected in that three-day period. In Pennsylvania, Biden right now is ahead by about 45,000 votes. It's possible those ballots might have been 10,000, 20,000. It's also possible that those ballots might have been already mixed in with the existing ones that came in under the regular rules. The constitutional problem is that under the Constitution, the state legislature is given the power to set the time, place, and manner of elections. And the state Supreme Court, several of the justices of the Supreme Court have already said, they think might have violated that by changing the date. Now, if Biden-Trump's difference narrows through a recount and through looking at the ballots again to the point where those three days of ballots make a difference, then the U.S. Supreme Court could really uh, end up calling the shot in Pennsylvania. The other matter in Pennsylvania is this issue of curing mail-in ballots and where uh, some election officials in some counties allowed people who sent in mail-in ballots that would not have been counted because they were incorrectly filled out the opportunity to cure them, to fill them out correctly. And in other counties, that was not allowed, creating a two-tiered system. Uh, the, the likelihood that a court would weigh in on the unconstitutionality of that and suggest that cured ballots be discounted. That's a tougher one. I understand the legal claim. It's just harder to prove. So I, I think it's quite, if you had a case where some counties were using different standards than other counties to decide what's a valid ballot, that's a violation of Bush versus Gore from 20 years ago. That's actually one of the reasons why the Supreme Court stopped the never-ending recounts in Florida, because one county was letting in more ballots under a different standard than other counties in Florida. If that's going on in Pennsylvania, uh, you know, that meets the Bush versus Gore criteria. The problem is, um, and I think this is the problem that Trump lawyers are having, is how do you prove it? You know, you need to have witnesses. Uh, you need to have statements. It would be great if you could show ballots themselves where this had happened. Um, that's a tough case to make out. And so we have to wait and see, I think, what the Bush attorneys are going to – I'm sorry, Bush attorneys, I'm sorry. I'm yeah. still living in the tw- in yeah. 2000. What the yeah. tra- still what scarred the from that trauma. Yeah, right. <laughs> now, by the way, since you are uh, – wait, you're a Pennsylvania native, but you you vote in California now? Yeah, I, I truly have a wasted vote. <laughs> yes, I, I know the feeling in <laughs> Illinois. A wasted ballot. <laughs> um, well, so – okay, and so the, what about uh, the litigation in the other states? I mean, some of this uh, – in some of the states, the same issue is implicated, but you also have the additional – questions about major ballot dumps in the early hours on Wednesday morning in places like Milwaukee County, as well as Philadelphia. You have the computer glitches in Antrim County, Michigan, as well as in Georgia. From what you've read and seen of the complaints that have been filed, do any of those present promise for a substantial remedy that, again, would 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 change the trajectory of the outcome? I haven't seen it yet. I mean, this is part of why we have litigation is, you know, the Trump campaign has an opportunity now to put on its proof. There'll be hearings in all of these states and the Trump campaign. Ideally, what they would do is produce people who uh, worked in these election, uh, these county election boards who were participating in the count or saw our witnesses who saw these kinds of allegations take place. Um, so we haven't seen it yet. Uh, and so that's why I think it's hard to see those making. I, I, I would tend to think If I were the Trump campaign, the better places to focus on would be Georgia, where the difference is still 
quite tight and there's going to be recount and their absentee um, overseas ballots to be counted and they can redo that. And then I guess Arizona, where it's also tight. These are, I think, I think Georgia's, let me look, 12,000. Yeah, 12,000. Arizona, Arizona 15,000. 15, Wisconsin, 20,000. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So these are places, I think, where Look, President Trump has the right to ask for recounts. He has the right to make sure that all the valid ballots were counted and there weren't any uh, invalid ones that were thrown into the mix. But I haven't seen the evidence yet. And that's that's why I'm a little bit skeptical of these other cases other than the one we talked about before, the one that's going to the U.S. Supreme Court out of Pennsylvania. That that one uh, going back to Pennsylvania, the likelihood that, number one, you know, sort of uh, real politique plays uh, a role in the judge's decision the justices decisions, meaning uh, we're not going to uh, to eliminate the ballots that were that were received after Election Day in Pennsylvania, even though we disagree with the Pennsylvania Supreme Court's ruling, because it doesn't change the outcome because we haven't seen these other states flip. Even if Trump wins Pennsylvania, he doesn't change the election outcome. So we're not going to do it. Is that is that it's not a great legal argument, but is that is that is that sort of practicality something that uh, does enter the mind of the justices? Well, I think it enters the mind of a single justice, Chief Justice John Roberts yeah, <laughs> in particular. Right. Look, the best thing to have done, the Supreme Court have done this, is to take this case before the election and make clear that the rules were the rules and that you can't, you know, court, state courts can't go around changing the dates when election the ballots are due. It's confusing to the voters. And uh, they had time to do it. And for the justices, one of them to do it. But you need five justices to take a case. Uh, because there's nine justices, you need a majority. And Chief Justice John, this is you know, during the period before Amy Coney Barrett joined the court. So Chief Justice John Roberts voted not to hear the case. And I think he thinks exactly, unfortunately, the way you described, Dan. I think he was hoping it wouldn't be a close election, that no one would end up caring about the differences in Pennsylvania or some of these other states, and no one would care about the Supreme Court. Uh, you know, if there had been a clear uh, election outcome, you know, decisive one, which it wasn't, but if it had been decisive, then you wouldn't need to go to the U.S. Supreme Court. If the, if the, the problem if, is, if the court were to take this up and uh, rule in favor of the Trump campaign, I mean, what do you think is the least intrusive remedy they would uh, that they would mandate? Uh, is it is it discounting those ballots? Is it having another election? I mean, we've seen that happen at the congressional level in recent past in North Carolina. What, what do you think? I don't think the U.S. Supreme Court would call for another election on this case. I think what they would do is say any ballots that came in after the end of the election day on November 3rd are not to be counted. Mm -hmm. He is John Yu. He's Emmanuel S. Heller, professor of law at the University of California, Berkeley, author of Defender in Chief, Donald Trump's Fight for Presidential Power. Professor Yu, always a pleasure. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Dan. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Now we take Georgia, and then we change the world. Yeah! I'm sorry, can we put down the sugar? Now we take Georgia, and then we change America. Yay! Now we change, take Georgia, we change the world. Then he revised that down to just changing America. Uh, that's, of course, Chuck Schumer. 
Senate Minority Leader and uh, expects to continue to be Senate Minority Leader because, as John Fun writes in National Review, don't believe the hype about uh, the notion that Democrats, uh, even if the margin, the 12,000 vote margin that Biden enjoys over Trump and Georgia holds up, that that means that Democrats are positioned to win those two Senate seats as well. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by John Fun, columnist for National Review. John, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Pleasure. Thank you very much. Let's talk about those Senate races, because uh, not only does uh, control of the Senate hang in the balance, the margin hangs in the balance. And uh, it would be nice to have 52 if you're a Republican and not uh, 51, much less 50. But 51 uh, with Collins and Murkowski and Romney doesn't give you a margin on all the issues uh, that may arise that you would otherwise like to enjoy. So let's talk about David Perdue versus Loeffler. Uh, Purdue seems to me to be in a stronger position than does Kelly Loeffler, but give us your handle on both races. Well, they're two different races, and I think that they balance out pretty much in the end. Um, Purdue uh, led his Democratic opponent by over two points. Uh, the Libertarian candidate was the reason they went to a runoff. Uh, the Libertarian candidate is a conventional Libertarian, very conservative on economic issues. Um, in the debates that I saw, um, I would say someone who voted for him basically was to the right of Purdue. So I think that uh, Jan Ossoff, the Democratic candidate, did a good job, but he's Atlanta, he's urban, he won't play well in the rural areas. As for Kelly Loeffler, her opponent, Raphael Warnock, is a minister, respected, uh, teaches at Martin Luther King's old church in Atlanta, but he has ties to the Reverend Wright. Uh, you might remember the Reverend Wright sure. from Chicago. Yeah, the chickens are going to come home to roost for Yednock, right? Uh, let's just say that, uh, remember, Barack Obama skated by because we didn't learn about the Reverend Wright until very late in 2008. Well, we know all about Reverend Wright and Mr. Warnock now, and he's also made comments opposed to Israel. He has um, said many times that um, he has friends in the Black Lives Matter movement. Stacey Abrams, by the way, uh, continues to use Black Lives Matter rhetoric. She's the face of the Democratic Party turnout machine in Georgia. Um, I like my chances, and remember the most important thing about runoffs. Runoffs have much lower turnout. You're asking people to be motivated to go out and vote in the middle of the Christmas, New Year's holiday season. Yeah. Uh, there have been runoffs in Georgia for 60 years. They've been runoffs for everything from University of Georgia region positions to public utility commission to governor to senators. And in all of those runoffs, do you know how many runoffs Democrats have won? Zero. Zero. Uh, Question about uh, Warnock versus Loeffler, though. One thing that Loeffler has to do is uh, make amends with Doug Collins, the Republican congressman that challenged her for this seat, because there was, you know, there was um, uh, she was fighting essentially a two front war. You could say the same thing about Collins. But the consolidation of uh, Republican support needs to happen for her. Absolutely. And I think that's one of the reasons why uh, Purdue went to a runoff was there was a little bit of division in the Republican Party. But Collins has been appointed to head President Trump's recount effort in Georgia. That's an attempt to integrate him into the Republican Party to say, you know, you have a political future. And uh, Loeffler, by the way, is independently wealthy. 
she's already spent a chunk of her own money in this race. She will spend whatever she needs to of her family's fortune in this race. Now, the one area where I think she's vulnerable is, of course, she was accused of insider trading earlier this year of uh, basically trying to sell pharmaceutical stocks in the middle of the COVID crisis. But there was an ethics committee investigation in the Senate. It's a bipartisan committee, and she was cleared. Uh, one other thing about Warnock. Um, it's interesting. I don't think I've ever seen this, and I wonder um, what the point is and how it plays in Georgia in a general election, including a runoff. Reverend Raphael Warnock on his yard signs and campaign material, the use of his title of reverend on his campaign material. No one is going to make a big issue of that. Uh, you know, he can call himself anything he wants. Uh, I'm sure that he will motivate a lot of people to vote to the churches. But the bottom line is uh, people in modern America vote for uh, the whole campaign, the whole candidate. And I think when this is over, Reverend Warnock will be viewed as a fine man of God who's way too liberal. Well, I mean, there are some questions right now, uh, one being uh, the matter of vote counting in Fulton County and two being the matter of that uh, Dominion voting system software and whether or not there was a glitch in Georgia the way there was a glitch in Michigan. Um, You know, the software issue is something that's uh, beyond my pay grade. I leave that to the experts. However, I will say um, software is something that has been looked at dozens and dozens of times in contest after contest in this country. Um, Our low voting machines are not connected to each other. There's not uh, interconnection. Therefore, the challenge of using software to steal votes on a mass basis is a really big one because they're not interconnected, and there's never been an example proven. Uh, So I would say glitches are possible. We should look at them. But I don't think there is evidence of a massive software theft. With respect to uh, Trump, um, just thinking about this uh, globally, the, the special election, yes, but but bigger than that. If uh, he uh, ultimately is determined to his satisfaction to have lost the race and the transition to a President Biden occurs and so forth, what do you uh, think will be Trump's role in Republican Party circles going forward? Will it be still... Um, uh, so, someone who uh, not not just commands an audience, but can also deliver uh, votes, and that McConnell and McCarthy will still enlist him for uh, support in races in the midterms and, and beyond? Or how, how do you see that playing out? I don't think Donald Trump needs anyone's permission to insert himself into a race. If he wants to do that, he will show up. Uh, there are places where he will be very popular, and there are places where he will campaign. And there are places where he will have large rallies. And um, as for his future in the Republican Party, uh, he will spend a lot of time hinting that he's going to run again in 2024. Uh, he will spend a lot of time uh, saying that um, Joe Biden is doing a bad job. But ultimately, uh, the Republican Party uh, is going to realize it needs to look at new leadership. It needs to have a competition between all of these younger candidates, whether they're Mike Pence, Nikki Haley, uh, Christy Noem, uh, Governor DeSantis of Florida, and they're going to, there's going to be a competition for the future. And Donald Trump will be 78 years old. So I think Donald Trump remains a factor, but I also think people are going to be looking beyond him because in 2024, they're going to have to have options as well. 
He is John Fun, columnist for National Review. John, thanks as always for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you. Show.com. Welcome back to the show with apologies to 1980s Detroit R&B band One Way. Paraphrasing who's cooing who. On the one hand, as we talked about yesterday, Ezra Klein is suggesting that President Trump is engaged in a slow rolling coup attempt right before our very eyes. I don't really understand how prosecuting your legal rights in in courts of law is a coup attempt. But okay, that's what the left is saying. On the other hand, I've got this piece from Thomas Lifson over at the American Thinker. The election coup plot explained. So uh, who is pursuing a coup? For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by the aforesaid Thomas Lifson, editor and publisher of AmericanThinker.com. Thomas, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Hi, Dan. So the election coup plot, this was um, an orchestrated matter to uh, to steal the presidency, as uh, Newt Gingrich has alleged, and not just one-off instances of incompetence or voter fraud, in your estimation? Yes, Um I actually, Tucker Carlson did a great job explaining this on his program last week. But uh, basically, uh, the the setup was that the media claimed the New York Times did this. They uh, published this before the election that uh, the media would declare the winner. And of course, we all know now that on uh, election night, the orchestration of uh, networks calling various states for one candidate or the other featured states that Trump was obviously winning not being called, and Arizona most notably being called by Fox News when I think 1% or so of the vote was in. And of course, now we know Arizona is still counting and still isn't determined. Uh, it, make a long story short, uh, on Saturday, as, as we saw, the networks in the, in the morning, at least the morning where I live, uh, declared the election's over. Bush, uh, uh, Biden has uh, won the election. And that was uh, triggered all the demonstrations, all the joy, all the celebrations that we've seen all over. Very few star windows broken up, uh, as Wag put it, uh, crowds celebrating the victory of Biden in front of stores boarded up uh, in case he lost. Uh, Basically, the, the public is being sold that the election is over. And the reason this is being done is to delegitimize any subsequent court decisions or legislative actions that do not endorse the electors that the media have said have been won by Biden. Well, now, let me ask you, let, let me just let, let me just stop you there and, and put this to you. So so Brett Baer on Fox News responding to the criticism Fox has taken for their early call in Arizona. And also he didn't respond to this specifically, but he certainly could have some of their late calls on states that clearly were in Trump's camp of Florida, for example, Um, saying, hey, look, you know, we made projections and calls in 2016 too, constantly calling states for Trump and then calling the presidency for Trump. So the media calling states and ultimately calling the outcome for a presidential candidate this is not new. 
and it's not part of a coup? Well, it's been going on for a lot longer than that. Uh, the point is that you make questionable calls and you arrange the timing so that uh, people on the West get discouraged and, and don't go vote. Uh, this, we all remember, happened in, in the 2000 election with Florida being called while the polls were still open in the panhandle. You know, Florida has two time zones. Right. And when the, when the polls closed eastern, Florida was called for Gore, and this discouraged people in the panhandle from turning out and voting uh, for Bush. Uh, really a, a flagrant abuse. And uh, ever since then, the, the networks have waited until the central time zone polls are closed in Florida before calling Florida. But calling Arizona uh, when, less, when 1% or less of the vote was in and the state is not obviously uh, going for one or the other, as has proven to be the case, is abusive. And not calling states that were very clearly, like Florida, where Trump had a big margin, uh, refusing to call them is also abusive. I'm sorry, it just doesn't stand up to uh, scrutiny. Moreover, the guy that, that heads the decision desk, as they call it at Fox, is a Hillary uh, donor and a pretty enthusiastic Democrat, man by the name of Michigan. Right. Yeah, I spoke to Mike Emanuel about that, and he basically said, look, I didn't know that that was his uh, contribution background, but uh, worked with him before. He's been on the desk before. There's a Republican uh, who's part of the uh, data crunching team as well, and that he was spoken to during the night on election night on Fox. And so, you know, it's about math. It's not about partisan affiliation. When we come back, I want to continue this conversation with Tom Lipson, editor and publisher of The American Thinker, talk a little bit more about some of the component parts of the the coup allegation as there are you know substantive matters of law before courts in the several states that are instrumental in determining the final outcome uh, thomas lifson americanthinker.com more with him later The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. We're speaking with Thomas Lifson. He's the editor and publisher of American Thinker, AmericanThinker.com, one of the blogs I read daily. You should too. And uh, Tom, before the uh, break, we're talking about uh, this. alleged election coup attempt. And uh, we specifically were focused on the media and some of the ways in which uh, media outlets, including Fox News, were calling states on election night and into the subsequent days as the votes were tallied. Um, Other component parts of this suggested coup, election coup attempt that uh, you believe are in play? Well, I think that the public is being conditioned to regard the operation of our constitutional system, whereby state legislatures uh, confirm their electoral votes. And then simultaneously, we have various court actions underway, litigation in I don't know how many states now, but Michigan, Pennsylvania, uh, Nevada, uh, among them. Uh, Those have to be heard before we know what the final vote totals are in those states. And to proclaim that the election is over and Biden is elected, And that makes it appear that the operation of of our legal system as required in the Constitution is illegitimate. And, uh, of course, what I'm worried about uh, is the streets aflame in this country. And if you think that uh, 
if the judicial and, and constitutional system, the state legislatures do name their uh, state's electors, if that operates as it's intended and Biden is not chosen as the duly elected pres- next president, then we're, we're going to have an insurrection in this country because people have been told Biden won it. And the narrative will be from the 90 percent of the media that hates President Trump that the election is being stolen, that it's illegitimate. This is irresponsible. They, they know what they're doing. They're conditioning the public to not accept the operation of our system if it comes out against Biden in the end. How, how do you view some of the decisions that were made in the run up to Election Day? Um, let, let's take one notable decision the decision to effectively cancel the second debate after the uh, both candidates had had agreed on the three debates. And it left a lot of space in between the first and third debate. The first debate, not a great performance from Trump. And remember, the second debate effectively canceled after the first debate. So then it's giving more space and a lot more voting going on because of early voting between those right. the first and the third debate. And really, um, there was no basis for it, as we saw, because. Uh, President Trump did a town hall and Joe Biden did a town hall instead of debating one another on the same stage. This is the Presidential Debate Commission, sort of uh, in collusion, if you will, to borrow a word, with the networks, potentially. Right, right. And who's on the Presidential Debate Commission supposedly representing the Republican side? People that don't like Trump, establishment Republicans. Uh, so I, 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 I don't see any reason to, co- to continue the Presidential Debate Commission. Honestly, I think we'd, we'd be better off with no questions, no moderator, just put two candidates on stage for 90 minutes and let them talk. Yeah, totally. That would, be, that would be my ideal version of a presidential debate. We'd, we'd find out a lot about them under those circumstances. Uh, so on the one hand, you're concerned about uh, what may come to pass if uh, the courts intervene and, um, and, and essentially alter the outcome by addressing uh, substantive accusations of illegality in places like Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, right. Michigan, Arizona. On the other hand, you also write uh, about your concern that uh, despite uh, losing seats in the House, despite uh, probably not uh, picking up the Senate, uh, you have uh, the left in still full purge mode with uh, AOC, among others, suggesting that we're not just going to uh, dance on the political grave of President Trump, ideally. We're going to go after those who supported him. Right, right, and including people suggesting, people including Jake Tapper of CNN and uh, Jennifer Rubin, uh, op-ed columnist for The Washington Post, that Trump supporters be denied jobs, mm-hmm. college admissions, things like that. This, I mean, these are also most of the people that scream bloody murder about the McCarthy era in the 1950s when there were blacklists, and now they want blacklists to keep kids out of college. This is crazy. This, this is a level of vindictiveness that's characteristic of very bad banana republics and very bad uh, fascist tyrannies of the 1930s. I mean, this, this is not American. This is uh, intimidating people. Uh, telling them that uh, you will pay a price in your career, in your life, for having political views that I disagree with. And uh, when has this ever been accepted as mainstream in the United States? Back in the 1950s, which, uh, you know, I don't even want to call them liberals. I'll call them progressives. Uh, Progressives decried that uh, era for allegedly blacklisting Hollywood writers, 
uh, a pretty privileged group of people in general, uh, but uh, be that as it may, uh, preventing people who supported Trump from getting hired by uh, a corporation because they tweeted something in support of Trump. I mean, th- th- this this is uh, th- this this is just totalitarian. You conform to the approved views, or you don't have a life. It's like the the social credit system they're enforcing in China, where if you don't do things that the party wants, you're unable to buy an airline ticket. Nobody's gone that far in the United States, but this is the model that they're following, either consciously or on. And it's uh, it's just and and the media are not. I haven't seen anybody at the Washington Post rebuke Jennifer uh, Rubin for tweeting out about denying kids college admission and people uh, job opportunities because they supported Trump. Well, it's going to run. Where are the grownups? Right. And it's going to it's going to run headlong into their identitarian politics, isn't it? I mean, uh, you're going to deny nearly one in five black men who voted for Trump uh, a a college admission or job. You're going to deny more than three in 10 Latinos who voted for Trump a job or a college education. Absolutely. Yes. And half the country, basically. Mm hmm. Um, so so what you're saying is uh, Joe Biden's olive branch extended on Saturday night is uh, not one that his own side is willing to extend. So probably right. not worth accepting it. And and he hasn't denounced any of these people either. I mean, if, if he really is serious about the olive branch, he would uh, rebuke Jennifer Rubin. He would rebuke uh, uh, AOC. He, he, he would rebuke uh, uh, all, all the others that are making these threats. And there's lots of them. There's a, an organization called the Trump Accountability Project that is allegedly gathering a list with well over a thousand names on it now of people that are to be held responsible for supporting mm. Trump. The left in their lists. Yes, uh, we, we know this through history, don't we? The left in their lists. Thomas Lifson, editor and publisher of American Thinker, AmericanThinker.com. Tom, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks, Dan. Take care. The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the show. Well, uh, you know, first past the post with a musical offering on the 2020 election uh, as it uh, remains pending. Uh, some uh, YouTuber named G-Man has come up with this country offering, uh, Perhaps uh, worthy of a CMA next year. We'll we'll uh, we'll have to see. But um, this is uh, pallets full of ballots. Take a listen. When I went to sleep, Trump had the lead. How the hell did we go from election day to election week? Most of us died in the wrong again. They must have been confused. But I tell y'all about. Myself when I turn on the morning news Cause they found pallets full of ballots At 3 a.m. All the way from Georgia to Michigan They took the caps off of their Sharpies And they filled them f***ers in All those pallets full of ballots All for Joe Biden uh, Another verse, I could line dance to this Well, isn't that sweet? He got just what he needs Found just enough folks to get sleepy to believe. He said, Come on, man, I hope you'll be a good sport. Donald Trump said, 
Get that shit, I'll see your ass in court. Bring those pallets for the pallets around at 3 a.m. All the way from Georgia to Michigan. They called Arizona early and the only way to win. The pallets for the pallets, that's the only way they'll win. There's pallets full of pallets, all for nobody. That's pretty God good. Bless Donald Trump. God bless Donald Trump. There you go. That's pretty good. And uh, you're welcome for that uh, earworm, uh, pallets versus ballots, which you'll be humming for the rest of the day, no doubt. Uh, now, uh, we also have some uh, exclusive information about where those pa- some of those pallets full of ballots may have been uh, hidden away. Take a listen. That I have something in my room that could change the entire election. Sure you do. What if I did, Cal? What could you possibly have in your room that could change the outcome of the election? Pretty sweet, huh? What the hell is this? What's it look like? Hundreds of thousands of votes from all the swing states. I don't believe it. No, really. There are states full of swingers. Bunch of perverts, if you ask me. Why do you have these? Funny how voting works in this country, isn't it, Cal? Each one of these, a person. Someone who took the time to actually get themselves informed. Actually got up and drove to a voting area to make sure their voice was heard. Dude! Here's another patriotic American. He probably spent hours listening to all those presidential ads and tuned in to every debate. Knock it off, Cartman! Now, believe it or not, Kyle, I actually need your help. But first, you have to promise not to tell anyone. You're not getting away with this, you fat turd! Uh, yeah, I mean, the whole, the whole thing is somewhat cartoonish, so it seems appropriate to fold Cartman in, just generally speaking. I don't know. I'm starting to lose my grip on reality. This is Dan Proft. We'll uh, be back at the top of uh, next hour with Dr. Roger Klein. Talk about uh, going from the Alpha to the Omega the head of former head of molecular oncology at the Cleveland Clinic to talk uh, COVID vaccines and all thing, all things related to uh, COVID enthusiasts. Back right after this. This is the Dan Proft Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome to another edition of the Dan Proft Show. Thank you so much for joining us. You can follow us at danproftshow.com. That is the website. You also find podcasts there as you do on Spotify and iTunes. Twitter, at Dan Proft and at Dan Proft Show. Andrew Cuomo over the weekend, uh, America's governor there out of New York, uh, the uh, governor who presided over the worst and most lethal outbreak of COVID in the United States and nonetheless is treated like the general patent of COVID by the D.C. press corps. He had this to say about uh, the prospect of a vaccine and any sort of distribution of said vaccine, any sort of execution of a COVID vaccine plan between now and Jan 20. This administration is now starting to implement the vaccination plan. That's going to be very important. And that's probably the largest test we've had since COVID started. The vaccination plan is a huge undertaking. 330 million people have to be vaccinated. This nation only did 120 million COVID tests in seven months. Uh, If this administration uh, rolls out a flawed vaccination plan, it's going to be a problem because it's going to be very hard for the Biden administration to turn it back. Uh, But I think you'll see a different tone now. I think you'll even see some governors start to take a different tone now that Mr. Trump is out of office. 
Uh, I think the political pressure of denying COVID is gone. I think you'll see scientists speak with mm, uh, right. unmuzzled uh, voice now. Uh, and I think the numbers are going to go up and Americans are going to get how serious this is. The upshot is, you know, he should just hold off and let uh, Joe Biden uh, take the reins on this bad boy, especially with the news this week about Pfizer's intermediate uh, results of 90 percent efficacy with the vaccine that they have in development. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined again by Dr. Roger Klein. He is an expert with the Regulatory Transparency Project's FDA and Health Working Group, former director of molecular oncology at the Cleveland Clinic, former advisor to the FDA, CDC, CMS, and HHS. Dr. Roger Klein, thanks for joining us. Yeah, hi, Dan. Hello. So with respect to uh, the Pfizer being on the cusp of potentially a vaccine that they'll submit for FDA approval, how much of that is owed to uh standing up Operation Warp Speed, do you think? I think a lot of it is. First of all, there's a guaranteed purchase of $2 billion. We don't have the contract. They're not publicly available, so we don't know if there's been any uh, transfer of funds or if there's been assistance in, for example, the testing. But I would say there's two components to it. First of all, they had a guaranteed customer for $2 billion with contracts negotiated up front. And secondly, the regulatory framework and, and the push for implementation for increasing the speed and efficiency of the clinical trial approval process is a function of Operation Warp Speed. So I think that the HHS and the president deserves a great deal of credit for this. Mm. Uh, I wanted to get your take on this. This is something that was being circulated and get an expert opinion on this. So Trump suggested that the uh, Pfizer results were delayed post-election. And and remember, Pfizer suggested itself, with no prompting from Trump, that they would know by the end of October whether or not they had a vaccine in the offing. And then it was delayed until the announcement this week, of course. This has been circulating. Initially, the study protocol provided for an interim efficacy look at 32 events, in this case when 32 subjects across both arms of the study developed uh, infection. The FDA then moved the goalpost to 62 events, which explains the delay. Pfizer had guided to a late October interim efficacy readout based on the initial protocol of 32 events, but then it was uh, pushed off to say, no, 32 won't do. You're going to need 62 events. Do you have any information about that? Does that sound um, plausible to you, concerning at all? Does it sound plausible? Yeah, of course it's plausible. I mean, I, you know, it ended up over 90. So how, uh, how so, so they looked at over 90 patients instead of the 66. You know, what the deliberations were and why they changed their original plan is anybody's guess. And I'm not privy to any inside information. I These are decisions that people agree on and there's, you know, there's an arbitrariness to them. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. I wanted to get your take on another study out. A study that that, um, was done by an open safely cohort of 12 million adults in England, 35 authors of this uh, study. And the uh, result ultimately was this, uh, looking at uh, the transmission of COVID from children to adults. Our results demonstrate no evidence of serious harms from COVID-19 to adults in close contact with children compared to those living in households without children. This has implications for determining the benefit-harm balance of children attending school in the COVID-19 pandemic, for example. I mean, the upshot is that there's no reason kids shouldn't be in school now and shouldn't have been in school this entire time. Yeah, I mean, I think these types of studies are helpful in suggesting and in providing some data for, I think, what many of us suspect. Look, I, I've never believed that kids aren't going to get it, and I think they can transmit it, and I think we've seen that. They're not worse to edit necessarily. The, the risks of keeping children out of school, are, to me, seem far greater than the risks of 
sending them to school. And I, so I, I had some personal experience with this, with a child who I think had it. It's not entirely easy to tell uh, with, with the testing um, situation uh, that we experienced, but which I won't go into. But I felt all along that the kids belonged in school. And I think this further confirms that, that our instincts are right. And, you know, kids don't really get sick with this. And, you know, I'm sure they can transmit it. We're not at greater risk from it. And, I, you know, I think we need to move on with, with, with the central. Uh, I wanted to get uh, your reaction to another study because uh, therapeutics are so relevant, which particularly here as we're talking about uh, vaccine, even if everything checks out with the Pfizer vaccine development, you're still talking about maybe into the end of the first quarter of next year before the vaccine is widely distributed. Uh, we don't know exactly. This uh, study from the National Institutes of Health reported yesterday on hydroxychloroquine, finding uh, that it had no benefit for hospitalized COVID-19 patients. Looked at hospitalized patients beginning in April at 34 hospitals across the country, enrolled 479 out of 510 patients before preliminary evidence led the monitoring board to recommend stopping the trial. Most patients in both the hydroxychloroquine group and the placebo group were hospitalized and receiving oxygen or invasive mechanical ventilation to maintain their breathing. The upshot is that, again, HCQ had no benefit for hospitalized COVID-19 patients. But I ask about this study in part because of the results. This was published in JAMA, in part because isn't the promise of hydroxychloroquine prior to hospitalization, hydroxychloroquine, a treatment for early intervention? At least that's what we've heard from emergency room docs that we've spoken with. I think it's two, the potential is twofold. The first is that it would, it's an anti-inflammatory medicine. So, so it would prevent, in theory, help prevent that the cytokine storm is what they call it, where you have this overactive immune response. And it's not the virus itself, but your own body's immune response that that, that causes what the, the, the lung disruption, you know, the, what they call ARDS or acute respiratory distress syndrome. And so that would be the, the, the theoretical mechanism for, for uh, its impact on, on sick people. Uh, the other part would be its, its potential role as a direct inhibitor of viral replication, which has been shown in, in, in cells, you know, outside the body, but not, not you know, it's obviously not, not proved in um, in, in others, I don't. I think hydroxychloroquine has has moved back somewhat uh, from consideration, both because of a number of observational studies and, and some trials that don't prove uh, that don't prove or haven't yet proved effectiveness. But also because I think we're getting drugs that are more Better. antiviral type drugs that that look you know that have, look more promising, quite frankly. Uh, and uh, with respect to. Um uh, the renewed lockdowns in in Western Europe and some of the states in in this country, including Illinois, with no in in uh, in in in, di- in establishment dining at restaurants, for example, um, does that make sense to you with respect to uh, sort of using positivity rates as a trigger, ever moving positivity threshold rates? That I should add as a trigger for telling people you have to eat in a tent outside rather than in a restaurant with the door open, for example? I, I, so I, so I haven't been a big fan of this personally. I, I don't really think, you know, trying to micromanage an epidemic in that way hasn't, hasn't made a lot of sense to me. Because I, I, so, I, I always kind of look at what's the end game. And so I feel, I sort of feel like um, the better approach is what we want to do is we have two goals, and that's to, to prevent death, prevent serious consequences, uh, from from the virus, and I think that, and, and then to prevent the hospital system or the healthcare system from being overwhelmed. And I think 
you know, I think when, when we start to see those types of things, that would be the, the uh, I, particularly the hospital, like if the healthcare system starts to get overwhelmed, it, it could potentially justify uh, some of these more uh, serious measures uh, that, that we've taken. But in general, we haven't needed that. And I, you know, I'm, I, I, you know, I, I just, you know, you wonder what the end game is. If you want to, if you want to save people from, uh, from, for now we have a bad potential vaccine, you want to shut everything down or stop activity for the vaccine, you could say that's a goal. But I, I suspect half the people or more won't even take it. So, so I, you know, I, I, no, I don't really think it makes, I think people have choices and they, you know, they, they, they can uh, live, live their life. We're doing a much better job at protecting, uh, protecting people because they're protecting themselves. He is Dr. Roger Klein, expert with the Regulatory Transparency Project's FDA and Health Working Group, former director of molecular oncology at the Cleveland Clinic and former advisor at FDA, CDC, CMS, and HHS. Dr. Klein, always a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show, and uh, there's a manhunt afoot as we uh, speak right now in Houston for the perpetrator of a cop killing. 47-year-old sergeant was uh, killed in Houston, murdered in Houston. That is a manhunt afoot for that uh, officer's killer. And I, I say that uh, not just because it's noteworthy, because it's a peace officer, but also because Cedric Richmond, a House Democrat from Louisiana, saying over the weekend that uh, defund the police cost Democrats in the House who uh, are minus six seats. Uh, Joe Manchin, senator from West Virginia, Democrat, said uh, he is not going to support court packing or eliminating the filibuster statehood for D.C. and Puerto Rico, the crazy stuff. He said he's vows to vote against the crazy stuff if Democrats take the Senate. This is sort of the um, Faustian bargain he's trying to make publicly as there's a recognition that perhaps some of the identitarian Marxist gambits repelled voters in such a way that they lost House seats and they uh, missed an opportunity to pick up the Senate. For more on that, pleased to be joined by Matthew Continetti. He's the founding editor at the Washington Free Beacon and a resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. Uh, Matthew, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. So what about that? What about uh, some of the uh, pronouncements coming back, the uh, postmortem from Democrats about uh, their prospects in Congress, from both from Joe Manchin and Cedric uh, Richmond, to name but two? Maybe Al- throwing in AOC so despondent over her mistreatment by the Joe Manchin types of Democrats that she's considering quitting politics altogether, she tells the New York Times. Well, we can pray. Look, this was a bad night for Democrats. There's no question about it. The blue wave turned into a trickle. They lost seats in the House. Nancy Pelosi may have one of the narrowest House majorities since the New Deal. They failed to capture the Senate. The control of the Senate will come down to the two runoffs in Georgia, where Democrats are not favored. And even if they were to sweep both, it would be a 50-50 Senate with Kamala Harris as the tie-breaking vote. And with Manchin, that's what makes Manchin's comments so important, because he, in that situation, would become the most powerful senator in the country. If he says the filibuster stays, it would stay. So uh, 
I think what we're looking for uh, right now is a democratic civil war. As you suggested, it's already brewing. It, it started the day after the election when Alison Spanberger, who is narrowly reelected from her central Virginia district, lashed out at the socialists in her party, blamed them for the defeat, rightly, in my opinion. That led uh, AOC to um, call back and uh, shout back. And then uh, another uh, congressman who seems to have been probably reelected narrowly, Connor Lamb, I'm not sure the race has been called yet, but he then went after AOC. So from a conservative point of view, get the popcorn. Mm, interesting. Does that mean that Nancy Pelosi continuing on as speaker is at all imperiled? Well, I think uh, the chances of her drawing a serious challenger are higher now than they were just a week ago. You know, she's already said that she would only remain through 2022, but... I think her position is imperiled. Look, in 1998, the Republicans unexpectedly lost about five seats, I believe, in those midterm elections, and Newt Gingrich was out within the week. Mm -hmm. uh, here, uh, Democrats are on track to lose many more than that. So, of course, Pelosi, you know, she's been in charge of the Democrats uh, for 18 years. <laughs> so uh, I don't think she wants to go anywhere, but maybe some people will think it's time for a change. You know, Pelosi is in a similar position as John Boehner was, I think, um, after after the Republicans captured the House in 2010, which is that, you know, you have a relatively narrow majority, but you also have um, uh, an ideological uh, faction of your party that r really wants uh, results now. And um, with in Boehner's case, it was the Tea Party congressman, uh, and in Pelosi's case, it's the AOC squad, which actually increased, even though the Democratic majority decreased. Pelosi's in a lot of trouble. I think she should put Boehner on speed dial. <laughs> uh, you, uh, you write the vote counting. And this is uh, in your piece at freebeacon.com uh, right after the election. The vote counting isn't over. This is uh, a few days back. Uh, but the GOP comeback has already begun. The GOP comeback already begun. It, that's what you're describing when you say that, uh, the, uh, the infighting on the left and the opportunity it provides. That's right. I mean, I'm uh, amazed at this election. Um, it, it is an, an election like no other, as was promised. I mean, you think about it. Um, let's say that President Trump's court challenges fail and Joe Biden becomes the next president. Well, this is not a typical repudiation of an incumbent. Trump grew his vote over four years. Um, he, uh, most incumbents who, who leave office, take Jimmy Carter, George H.W. Bush, they get 40% of the vote. It's a, land, you know, it's a landslide uh, against them, in H.W.'s case, when you combine the, the Clinton-Perot vote. In this case, it's extremely tight election. It looks like right now, on the count I'm going, if Biden um, becomes the president, uh, he will have done so because of, of under 150,000 votes in a few states. Yeah, under 100, actually. Yeah, yeah so, so, I mean, that's basically Trump's margin in 2016. This is a very closely divided country. It is not the outcome that, that the Democrats wanted. It's not the outcome Trump supporters wanted if, if, if the court challenges fail. But it's a very closely divided country, and it suggests that the Democratic um, gain, hold on the House of Representatives, for example, or even the presidency, is very, very precarious. And that means that Republicans aren't going anywhere. Look, liberals thought that this election would give them the chance to legislate the Republican Party out of existence. They were prepared to abolish the filibuster, abolish the Electoral College, admit new states to the Union, pack the court, expand it by several seats, and basically leaving the GOP and conservatives um, on the outs for at least a generation. That did not happen. Far from it. I mean, you basically look at this election result more or less the same as the election results for the past few cycles. 
which means that we live in a highly divided country that's polarized along ideological lines, and where basically whoever gets that swing in the middle, that swing in the suburbs and that swing in the independent vote, uh, has a majority. Uh, with respect to infighting, what about uh, on the Republican side between uh, Trump supporters and uh, the uh, various uh, iterations of never-Trump Republicans? Right. I mean, that will continue, uh, absolutely, you know, for, for a long time. And uh, I think here the Trump supporters have reasons uh, to be, to be uh, angry, uh, and they have every reason to um, uh, think about all the various uh, uh, matters that, that just happen to go in the wrong direction from their perspective. Um, for the never-Trumpers, I, I think they uh, have to reckon with the fact that this is a changed Republican Party, that Donald Trump leaves the Republican Party better off uh, than either of the two previous outgoing Republican presidents, both of whom were named Bush. You know, if you just look at the situation mm-hmm. uh, at every level of government, let's, I discussed Congress. Let's go to the governor's mansions. Okay, one governor mansion switched hands, and it was to the Republicans. If you look at the state legislatures, Republicans are now in a position to control the redistricting process for the next 10 years. If you go back in either uh, 1992 or 2008, the Republican Party was, it was a very, very uh, minimal strength. That's not the case now. So I think never-Trumpers do need to understand that, that Trump was not this kind of kryptonite on the GOP or on conservative conservatism that they thought he was. He may have hurt himself, um, for sure. He may, have, he may have hurt his own chances at winning re-elections, but that did not carry over to the Republican Party or conservatism. Yeah, I mean, your, your point is well taken. I mean, in addition to just in terms of uh, self-identified Republicans, 93% support for the president. So, you know, that uh, uh, with respect to a, a president who got 71 million votes, that's uh, something you have to take judicial notice of if you want to be a party builder, if you want your party to be a majority party, a governing party, no question. He is Matthew Connetti, founding editor at the Free Beacon and resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. Matthew, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you. Listen to podcast of the show at danprofshow.com. Welcome back to the show. I'm just picking up on our conversation with Matthew Continenti from Free Beacon about uh, the Never Trumpers in particular and that uh, battle, as Continenti said, that will uh, rage on between Never Trumpers and Trump supporters going forward. Continenti said for a long time. Victor Davis Hansen, our friend VDH, put together a good piece for amgreatness.com, the Never Trump, Never Again. The point sort of I made, too. Do you remember in 1984, Never Reaganers? I don't. Uh, and thus the gradations of never Trumpers. He breaks them up into three categories, which is sort of interesting and useful, I think, because it speaks to who is, you know, reachable and an erstwhile ally and who is an enemy inside the perimeter, I would argue. The hardcore are like the you know, Lincoln Project types that were running ads. The Rick Wilson's calling Trump voters credulous boomer rubes. The George Conways of the world, the hardcore. They hated candidate Trump as 
BDH writes, they swore he would never be nominated, never be elected, never finish his term, never be reelected since 2015. Most of their lives have been consumed by joining everyone from the anonymous, a non-entity to the mooch in damning Trump. A few claim they that they still remain conservative, but their venom prompted them to oppose almost all Republican senators and House members for their apostasy of Trump support. In fact, they are akin to nerds in high school who snooted about the people on their no invite list for parties. None of those people wanted to attend anyway. Yeah. In the uh, ashes of the Trump defeat, the Republican never Trump Phoenix bird of prey would arise with a new doctrinaire creed under sober and judicious leadership. Maybe someone like a younger Romney, a wonkish clone of Paul Ryan, a rebranded, re-energized Jeb Bush, or, and this is interesting, a MAGA veneered reefers engineer Marco Rubio or Nikki Haley, who now claims to be suspicious of China or wants fair rather than just free trade. That's what they envisioned would succeed Trump. More likely, they believe that the Trump agenda could be repudiated and replaced with a new Never Trump contract with America. Mm-hmm. The Never Trumpers likely never envisioned themselves in the fading moments as orphaned grifters begging for left-wing cash to play the role of useful idiots, only to be cast off by their paymasters after their inept roles have been played out, which is now their immediate fate. And to his point, AOC is, wants to see the figures on the Lincoln Project's effectiveness. She wants the Lincoln Project to hand over their cash, any of the cash on hand, to more deserving leftists. Almost on spec, just hours after the election ended, the Never Trumpers were derided by the left as impotent scam artists and undeserving suctions of left wing money. Oh, yeah, they know who their friends and enemies are. So that's the hardcore Never Trumpers who would rather Trump fail with their own agendas failing with him than to see him succeed in acting all that they once had demanded. It's all personal for him. It's something VDH said to me uh, on this show once, too. It includes people whose uh, income and status were damaged by Trump. And so it's very personal to them. And they're happy to subordinate the big ideas they supposedly believed and were dutifully advancing ideas bigger than themselves. And that's the way they cast it. When in point of fact, there is nothing bigger than themselves. They would rather see exactly what VDH described. Then there's the second category, Never Trump Realists. A second saner group of Never Trumper realists was also more polished and practical, avoided both the crudity and the apostasy of the unhinged Lincoln Project bunch. They cheered good judicial appointments, outraged by the Democrats' treatment of Kavanaugh and Barrett. They would never give Trump much credit for either being in the position of a Republican president to appoint such stellar justices or refusing to repeat the error of appointing a John Paul Stevens, a Harry Blackman, or a David Souter, all appointed by nominated by Republicans. They praised the Middle East breakthrough. They clapped for record low minority unemployment. They cheer Trump's singular effort to champion religious liberty to protect the unborn. They see occasional bouts of advantage with Trump, but are happy to cut him loose when they feel his utility has now ended. They envision a failed Biden presidency and hope for a Republican and obstructionist Senate that will that by 2024 can show the pathway to a more mannered Republican nominee. They have no plan for how to keep MAGA stalwarts in the party. Finally, the never Trump Trumpers. They uh, wrote reluctant endorsements for him, usually spend three quarters of their essays throat clearing by first listing the various crudities, their own past renunciations of Trump and the pervasive callousness of Trump before finishing the last quarter after their op-eds with a reluctant he's better than the alternative right now. So there's the three categories of Trumpers. How about the pro-Trumpers? It was simply a question of whether the livelihoods of the middle classes were better off before or after Trump, whether the Middle East and Israel in particular would be safer now or before Trump, whether the U.S. economy was better or worse off for Trump's efforts. Yeah, I think that's right. And I started out as Trump skeptic when he first rode down an escalator, as I've talked about on this show. Uh, but uh, in terms of well, watching what he did and judging him based on what he did, uh, it was, uh, to me, eminent common sense to move into the category of pro-Trump based on his 
his policy decisions. If you believe, as I do, that you're not to fall in love with politicians, they'll only break your heart. You're to see them as the ends to policy, as the means to policy ends, I should say, the policy ends you seek to advance that truly should be bigger than you as an individual, but also include you and your interests as an individual. And by that score, I'm moved out of the never Trump uh, troika that uh, VDH describes and into the pro-Trump camp before the 2016 election was out. And I'm glad I did. The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. We're pleased to be joined now by Hans von Spakowski, Senior Legal Fellow for the Heritage Foundation, former FEC Commissioner and DOJ Attorney. Hans, thanks for being with us. Appreciate it. Sure. Thanks for having me. So give us your assessment of what the most compelling case is the Trump campaign is making in legal complaint form in courts around the country in terms of something that is systemic in nature and could materially impact the outcome in one or more states. Sure, probably their strongest case is the one they filed yesterday in Pennsylvania. Remember, in Pennsylvania, there's a 45,000 vote margin. And what they claim in there is that there were numerous violations of both state law and federal law by election officials in the Pittsburgh and Philadelphia areas, which are the big uh, Democratic strongholds in the state. And as a result of those violations, uh, Pennsylvania had a two-tiered voting system, one that gave a greater opportunity to people to vote in Pittsburgh and Philadelphia and less of an opportunity in the rest of the state. And that, they say, violates the basic principles set out in the Bush v. Gore decision, which which basically said um, you can't have different standards for voters in different parts of the state. They have to be uniform. And, And in particular, for example, what they say is Look, there were something like seven, almost 700,000 absentee ballots received in, again, the Pittsburgh, Philadelphia area. And uh, election officials there set up a cure system. In other words, if, a, if an absentee ballot came in that would normally be rejected under state law because like a signature was missing or there was other information not in there, instead of rejecting the ballot, which is what state law requires, instead they would call up voters and say, look, there's a problem with your ballot. You need to come in and fix it. And they gave them the opportunity to do that. Voters in the rest of the state didn't get that opportunity because it's not allowed under state law. Because of that, they say um, the, the, the election needs to be overturned uh, because of that. And the bottom line is it's against state law. It's against black letter state election law. So this should not right. be that complicated. What becomes complicated is what the remedy is. Um, can you identify right. all the ballots that were that were cured and discard them uh, or or provide some other remedy. And we don't know what impact that would have on the outcome. That, that's right. And plus, they also point out that, um, look, state officials, including the state Supreme Court, extended the deadline for the receipt of absentee ballots three days past Election Day. 
that's not allowed under state law. The state law set out by the legislature is you got to have your ballot in the hands of election officials by the end of election day. And so they're also saying none of the ballots that were received after election day should be included in the count. What we don't know is whether those ballots were in fact segregated by election officials. And so we don't know if they can actually be, be pulled out of the count. And, and, and so this is filed in district, federal district court in Pennsylvania. Yeah. Um, how quickly right. does this get to the Supreme Court? Uh, I think it's going to get there very quickly. I think the judges all understand that they have a very short time uh, limit for doing this. Remember, the Electoral College meets at the beginning of December, and by that time, the results have to be determined in all the states, including Pennsylvania. So I think they'll act within days on on this lawsuit. You also had the matter where you're describing the curing of ballots illicitly. There was allegations that occurred in Wisconsin as well, at least right. Wisconsin. And so uh, this perhaps is an issue we see repeating itself around the country. No, that's right. Plus, look, they make a very big deal about the fact that um, the election officials in places, again, like Philadelphia, Detroit and elsewhere, uh, broke state law when they wouldn't allow uh, GOP observers in to watch the processing, handling, opening and counting of absentee ballots. And they're right. That is a straight out violation of state law. And, and so the remedy with that for that would ostensibly be a, a recounting of those ballots uh, with an allowance for said observation. Well, yes, but that might not cure the, some of the problems if, for example, they were just routinely waiving state law requirements um, there's no way to to know that when you're doing a recount. Right. I, what they're trying to do is to say that that there were so many problems, so many issues that even if you can't determine the exact number of ballots that were illegally cast, it it so calls into question the outcome of the election that you have to you have to stage a new one. Wow, that would be something. And and the um, yeah. and, and the remedy is essentially for a new election that is being suggested in Pennsylvania and where else with respect to campaign Trump campaign litigation. Well, I'm I'm sure they're going to do that in Michigan and Wisconsin, too, uh, if the illegally cast ballots can't be uh, separated. That that's, This has never been done in presidential election, although it's been done in in other elections have been overturned, like the congressional race in the ninth district of ninth, uh, North Carolina just two years ago, where that's a new right. election was ordered because of absentee ballot fraud. That's right. Hans, uh, what about litigating the results to date in Georgia? Georgia, I don't think they've filed a lawsuit yet. Um, they are questioning the counting of ballots, for example, in one county there. Uh, and remember, the, the, the margin there is only like 10,000 votes. They're questioning uh, the counting of absentee ballots in one particular county there because they have a witness who said he saw them, election officials, receiving and, and processing ballots after the deadline. The deadline in Georgia is the end of Election Day. And this person says he saw them uh, getting ballots in the middle of the night that had obviously been received late, and yet they were opening them and counting them. And, and anything else, just the category of all of the other assertions, uh, uh, whistleblowers in the post office saying they're backdating postmarks of ballots, right. uh, felons illicitly voting in, in Wisconsin, uh, people who are not in the state or who have died voting, 
and so forth. And then the, the, all the questions surrounding the Dominion voting systems, that software platform in both Michigan and Georgia. Any of those other right. issues that have been raised do you find particularly compelling, particularly noteworthy? Uh, they've got to produce evidence on all of those. I mean, they're all serious issues, but they've got to produce the evidence showing that that kind of thing was happening. He is Hans von Spakovsky, Senior Legal Fellow for the Heritage Foundation, former FEC Commissioner and DOJ Attorney. Hans, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Welcome back to the show. I want to uh, go back to COVID. We discussed at the top of the hour with Dr. Roger Klein, who's always great. Something about uh, COVID that's been underreported, the uh, implications of the lockdown policy, the trade-offs that uh, the left, including uh, Biden's uh, gaggle of uh, COVID consultants. And oh, by the way, if I was him, I'd keep my head on a swivel. You got uh, Zeke 75 or less, Emmanuel, as one of his COVID consultants. And you got a whole bunch of death with dignity killers in the Democrat Socialist Party. In fact, the party's rotten with them. (laughs) So, oh, oh, by the way, I don't know how to break it to you, Joe, but you're three years past uh, Zeke Emanuel's sell-by date and you're three decades past the cognitive ability threshold clearing level of your death with dignity assassins in the Democrat Party. Just a heads up. uh, But this addition, this uh, takeaway, women in the workforce. The pandemic recession, this of the Amazon Post reporting this, the pandemic recession caused by lockdowns, my parenthetical remark, has been dubbed a she session because it has hurt women far worse than men. The share of women working or looking for work has fallen to the lowest level since 1988, wiping out decades of hard fought gains in the workplace. Amazon Post reporting on Friday, October uh, jobs report. The Labor Department's jobs report showed the economy has gained back just over half the jobs lost in March and April. But the situation remains dire for women. There are 2.2 million fewer women working or looking for work now than in January versus 1.5 million fewer men, according to Labor Department data. Boy, that's a big number and a big difference between the two, isn't it? Uh, About uh, 50 percent more women in nine months of uh, Jeffrey Tucker writing about this. In nine months of this hell, one might suppose there would have been a clear test of whether and to what extent severe outcomes from catching the virus were really associated with school attendance. It has finally arrived and the news is not good for the lockdowners. And this is what I referenced towards the end of our discussion with Dr. Klein. And you heard his answer in support of schools being open. He never really bought into the idea of locking down schools. It's not just it was not just without scientific basis. It turns out it was anti-science as was my reference to the study out of England that finds basically uh, no difference in terms of serious harms from COVID to adults in close contact with children in their household versus adults who have no children to be in close contact with in their household. Now, it speaks to what should be done about schooling. So think about this. Uh, So many million women 
uh, ditched their jobs or got ditched from their jobs, one of the two, in order to be home with their kids. And none of it was necessary. The kids should have never been home. They should have been in school and they should have certainly resumed school in the fall. And uh, many who knows how many more hundreds of thousands, perhaps millions of women would still be employed or still have that option. So perhaps those leftist women who have it all, the job and, uh, and motherhood and family and uh, are acolytes of the left may want to consider what the lockdowns have cost them and the lockdown politicians they otherwise genuflect before. They took your job in many cases and took your kids' school away. And for what? On what basis? Nothing. This is Dan Prop. This is the Dan Proft Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. New York Times report. Votes cast by mail less likely to be counted, more likely to be compromised, more likely to be contested than those cast in a voting booth, statistics show. Election officials reject almost 2% of ballots cast by mail, double the rate for in-person voting. More people you force to vote by mail, the more invalid ballots you will generate. That's uh, Ian Sancho, an elections supervisor in Florida. Election experts say the challenges created by mail ballots could well affect the outcomes this fall and beyond. If the contests next month are close enough to be within the what election lawyers call the margin of litigation, the grounds on which they will be fought will not be the hanging chats, but ballots cast away from the voting booth. The uh, trend towards more voting by mail, quote, will probably result in more uncounted votes. It increases the potential for fraud. While fraud in voting by mail is far less common than innocent errors, it is vastly more prevalent than the in-person voting fraud that has attracted far more attention, election administrators say. Voting by mail is now common enough and problematic enough that election experts say there have been multiple elections in which no one can say with confidence which candidate was the deserved winner. This list includes the 2000 presidential election in which problems with absentee ballots in Florida were a little noticed footnote to the other issues. Reading from the New York Times. Election administrators have a shorthand name for a central weakness of voting by mail. They call it granny farming, which was the uh, name of my high school band, by the way, granny farming. The uh, problem, said Murray Greenberg, a former county attorney in Miami, is really with the collection of absentee ballots at the senior citizen centers. In Florida, people affiliated with political campaigns, quote unquote, help people vote absentee. Uh, Voting in nursing homes can be subjected to subtle pressure, outright intimidation or fraud. The secrecy of their voting is easily compromised. Their ballots can be intercepted, both coming and going. That's what we call ballot harvesting. The problem is, is not limited to the elderly, of course. Absentee ballots also make it much easier to buy and sell votes. In recent years, courts have invalidated mayoral elections in Illinois and Indiana because of fraudulent absentee ballots. In 2008, Minnesota officials rejected 12,000 absentee ballots, about 4% of all such votes, for the myriad reasons that make voting by mail far less reliable than voting in person. Heather Gerken, a law professor at Yale, tells the New York Times, You could steal some absentee ballots or stuff a ballot box or bribe an election administrator or fiddle with an electronic voting machine. Why all the evidence of stolen elections involves absentee ballots and the like, she said, as opposed to in-person voter fraud on a large scale. You could instead, more likely, steal some absentee ballots, stuff a ballot box, bribe an election administrator, or fiddle with an electronic voting machine. That's the New York Times in 2012, October of 2012, one month before President Obama's 
reelection, expressing concerns about the increase in vote by mail in places like Florida because they were concerned about Obama's reelection. Fast forward eight years and nary a peep from The New York Times as to all the issues that they raised in 2012 in advance of the 2012 presidential election. Isn't that interesting where your concerns about the credibility and integrity of our elections ebb and flow, depending on who is advantaged by making our elections more susceptible to fraud? For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Ken Blackwell, who knows something about the administration of elections. He's the former Ohio secretary of state. He's a member of the Board of Advisors of the Trump-Pence 2020 campaign as well. Ken, thanks for joining us. Uh, You're old enough to remember when the New York Times used to care about things like uh, mail-in votes and fraud and counting elections properly. What do you say to uh, those who suggest that Trump-Pence campaign should just accept the result as determined by the media and stop with all of this litigation in the direction of uh, recounts and uh, so forth? Look, projections are not prophecy. Uh, A divine spirit didn't whisper into their ear, their collective ear, here is who won. Look, I start out, I said, tell me one state that has certified their count. They couldn't answer because not one state has certified their count. And therefore, the president, his campaign, citizen groups have every right to shine a bright light on the process, to kick the tires on the integrity of our system. Listening to that 2012 New York Times piece that you just read from, look, there are things that they point out that are really of concern in this election. One is the chain of custody. How many people's hands touch your ballot? between your signing it and sending it in and it being registered? Are there gaping holes in the chain of custody that make our system more volatile and vulnerable? And what happened in 2012, the New York Times concluded, yes, it does. And that's the same issue that we're faced with now, verification, to make sure that voters are who they claim to be. That's why we have voter ID. That's why we look for postmarks. That's why we compare signatures. And now we have many, many jurisdictions that didn't compare signatures, didn't require a postmark. And what they've done is actually open the door again to voter fraud. Illegal ballots canceling out legal ballots. Transparency. Uh, All of the shenanigans that we hear across the country about people being blocked from observing the process, something that is so important to getting the public to buy into the legitimacy of the final count, is now just riddled with transgressions. Accountability. And I want to just focus on this. I've been working in Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania had an extension of when ballots could come in and be counted. The Supreme Court, the state Supreme Court of Pennsylvania, overrode the schedule and the rules book of the state legislature. And an activist court created a situation where now they've put in doubt the equal protection of the voting process for the citizens of Pennsylvania. That was an illegal action. Article 2 of the United States Constitution gives the authority to set the rules for an election, not to a state Supreme Court, but to the legislature. And so right now, a perfect storm has materialized in Pennsylvania. And I don't know how the U.S. Supreme Court avoids making a decision that they now have they have votes that have been segregated out that they've identified about 350,000 
vote that shouldn't be allowed because of when they came in because of a overreach by the state Supreme Court. So there's two issues in Pennsylvania. One is the mm-hmm. one you just described, and the other issue, and this is, we talked to Hans von Spakovsky uh, early yeah, in the program the about mm-hmm. about the uh, problem of certain county officials allowing people to cure their mail-in ballots, uh, right. mail-in ballots that would have been spoiled. They came in and cured them. Mm-hmm. That's improper because it's essentially a two-tiered system. Then right. Some counties you cure your ballots, some counties you can't. So what do you see potentially as the most likely outcome? Would it be another election in Pennsylvania? Would it be just setting aside the ballots that were received after 8 p.m. on election night, the 350,000 that you're referring to? Mm-hmm. What do you see as the remedy here, or the most well, likely well, there, remedy? There, there are three. The two that you just mentioned, and then the third one would be the court basically saying that the body that should make the decision as to the appropriate electors from Pennsylvania is the state legislature. Which is controlled uh, by? Republicans. Exactly. And so... I would think that the schedule is pretty tight for a redo. I don't know if the Supreme Court has the courage to pull the trigger on uh, setting aside those 350. And they already know how they broke. The reality is that that would, in fact, make Trump the victor in Pennsylvania. I think that that's the most appropriate because there are 350,000 ballots that came in in this unequal system that was the result of a state Supreme Court overreach. And and that's the way I would go. What about the possibility? Do you know the number of votes? Can you, were they the the votes that were cured, the mail-in votes that were cured, is that, were they set aside? Are they categorized somewhere? That's a harder one to to, to track. Mm -hmm. They've been mainstream for 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 the most part. But there is that consistency of a pattern of irregularities, anomalies, that actually make it easier, I think, for the Supreme Court of the United States to reach a decision consistent with Article 2 of the U.S. Constitution that the state Supreme Court of Pennsylvania overreached, and those votes should not be counted. And anybody who's frustrated with that should hold the governor and the state Supreme Court accountable. Well, the other thing, too, is, you know, that this could become very pragmatic as well when and you say, you know, if if you cannot raise an issue that has the potential to change the outcome in other states, then just changing the outcome in Pennsylvania might not be enough to change the ultimate outcome of the election. And so we're going to demur on the matter. Yeah, hey, look, that is a, a cowardly way out. Let's let's keep, stay on that track. I think contrary to. Fox News's premature projection, I think there's still a chance that Arizona flips mm-hmm. to Trump. Mm-hmm. I think Georgia will flip to Trump. All of a sudden, you take that excuse for not deciding. Right, then you're in business. Race. Yeah, That's right. right. Then you're in business. Absolutely. He is Ken Blackwell, former Ohio Secretary of State. He's been through some close elections in Ohio. He was Secretary of State for the 2000 and 2004 presidential races, so he knows of what he speaks. He's also a member of the Board of Advisors of the Trump-Pence 2020 campaign. Ken, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Good to be with you. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show.
Welcome back to the show. Uh, moving from our very interesting discussion with former Ohio Secretary of State Ken Blackwell to um, back to the media. We spoke about it a little bit earlier in the program with uh, Tom Lifson from American Thinker, but uh, there is a real movement afoot to um, walk away, to borrow a hashtag campaign from Fox News. They've got their own hashtag, Fox Exit. Fox Exit. And it's not just because of the early call on Arizona that's so controversial. Arizona now about 15,000 vote margin between the two candidates. Um, and then a lot of uh, outfits not calling Arizona still to this point the Fox did. Uh, there's also other decisions that Fox has made that have been noticed that are rankling, I guess now, former Fox viewers. Fox News um spiked Judge Janine Pirro's program over the weekend. Uh, the, the allegation is after the network learned she planned to cover election fraud issues in the 2020 presidential race. Fox News claims that the reason the show didn't air was that Joe Biden was speaking at the same time and that her show will be back as of next week. On As of uh, Sunday evening, Judge Janine hadn't commented one way or the other on the topic. I mean, this after, of course, Chris Wallace's performance as the moderator in debate one, which was positively shameful and awful. It was awful on the merits. It was shameful on the substance, the questions asked, the phraseology, the interruptions, the uh, wanting to be the third principal on stage rather than the facilitator for the two principals. We don't need to relitigate that. It just needs to be mentioned. But it persists. There was the curious case on Outnumbered a few weeks ago that we covered on the show with Harris Faulkner, where Melissa Francis intervened when former House Speaker Newt Gingrich mentioned that correctly mentioned that George Soros was behind funding many of these non-prosecution county and district attorneys like Kim Fox and Cook County in Chicago and Larry Krasner in Philadelphia and Marilyn Mosby in Baltimore and others that have helped to turn the streets of those cities over to the mob. That's uh, and, and the what we don't need to get into George Soros interruption. Why? Why is George Soros off limits? Some asked myself included. Didn't really get a satisfying answer as to those interruptions, that attitude about uh, invoking the name George Soros. This is the name that shall not be spoken is bizarre, actually. And then uh, yesterday during press conference with uh, that to Kaylee McEnany, White House spokesperson, was having about the litigation that is pending. This happened on Fox Business with Neil Cavuto. We want every legal vote to be counted and we want every illegal vote. To whoa, whoa, whoa. I, I just think we have to be very clear. She's charging uh, the other side is welcoming fraud and welcoming illegal voting. Unless she has more details to back that up. I can't in good countenance continue showing you this. I want to make sure that maybe they do have something to back that up. But that's an explosive charge to make. The other side is effectively rigging and cheating. Did um, Neil Cavuto uh, also spike all of the coverage and the pronouncements on Fox Business for three and a half years when, without any evidence, uh, Adam Schiff and congressional Democrats accused the president of rigging the 2016 election, accused him of being accused him of treason, accused him of being Vlad Putin's man in D.C., Manchurian candidate come to life, life imitating art. And the Russian collusion again and again and again. We have evidence. What is your evidence? I'll get it to you. Never to be presented. Was, was that coverage 
absent from Cavuto's show on Fox Business? No, I don't think so. And oh, by the way, there are these substantive complaints that have been filed in court. There have news stories that have documented people voting illegally. We've talked about them on this show in Wisconsin, in Pennsylvania, in Michigan, uh, in Nevada. There, these, these are allegations, affidavits that have been presented to courts of law for adjudication and remedy to the extent remedies are available. So, I mean, the idea that this is out of bounds and sands any scintilla of evidence to support the claim, well, that's not true. You can argue the claim all you want. Sure, let's argue it on the merits. But to pick out one statement that McEnany is making at a press conference that is uh, memorialized in complaints filed in courts around the country and say, we can't, uh, we can't hear this. Sandra Smith was on, well, I think she, I don't think she thought she was on. Sandra Smith, another Fox News anchor at a hot mic moment. Trace Gallagher, Sandra Smith talking to Cleta Mitchell. We've had Cleta Mitchell on this show. She is a renowned election attorney in D.C., partnered a major firm, serious person, well-respected election attorney. And she was making this case about the election outcome before Sandra Smith chimed in, thinking that uh, she wasn't chiming in on air. Over whoever is decided to be the president, remember, just because CNN says, or even Fox News says that somebody's president, doesn't make them president. So I think everybody what? wants to know that this was done properly mm. and legally. What is happening? We like, Trace, we've results. called it. And I think we have to look into every one of these concerns. Yeah, so and I think... Yeah, and I think Cleo makes a very good point there, Steve. You know, Maybe the, Teresa look. and Sandra disagree. What? What is happening? We called it. Well, Sandra, again, um, I don't know how to break it to you, but you are not the uh, definitive word on the finality of an election. What? How can Cleta Mitchell say that? Why don't you listen to the argument she's making and pose a question if you're so aghast by the suggestion? Uh, These are the sort of instances, along with, say, James Murdoch's wife, Catherine Murdoch, James Murdoch, one of uh, Rupert's sons, who recently stepped down from the board of Fox News parent company News Corp because of disagreements with some of the company's editorial content. Gee, I wonder, uh, Catherine Murdoch, James's wife, we did it, exclamation point. What will you tell your children or your future self about the part you played in history? She tweeted, celebrating Biden's victory in response to a tweet. That referenced Jake Tapper saying the Murdochs and the people at Fox have an obligation to put their country above their profits. It's very important that the people make it very clear that there is no credible evidence of widespread fraud, quote unquote, from Jake Tapper. Catherine Murdoch's tweet. I agree with this. Well, maybe this uh, Fox exit hashtag is a real thing because uh, according to the national poll, uh, national pulse, I should say, nationalpulse.com, last Friday's ratings for. Fox were less than both CNN and MSNBC for the first time in years, according to an internal Fox document containing viewership analytics. The numbers showed on that November 6th, Fox pulled in 2.26 million viewers. CNN saw nearly twice as many at 4 million. And MSNBC, where you could normally hold their audience in a telephone booth, counted 2.98 million voters, beating Fox by more than 700,000 viewers. Viewers, I should say, not voters, viewers beating Fox by 700,000 viewers. And uh, they have an internal memo that they posted along with the story that uh, that breaks out the Fox News slump. Well, 
I guess that's good news for p- possible entrance into the market, whether it's Newsmax, who has a long way to go in terms of the quality of the product, uh, or Blaze TV, I'd say the same, or uh, I don't know. The rumors are that if Trump were to uh, be defeated f- formally and accept defeat, uh, that uh, maybe he would start a competitive a competitor network to Fox. Who knows? But uh, one thing seems clear, that a lot of former Fox viewers are pretty, pretty, pretty unhappy with Fox News as we stand here today. This is Dan Proft. Podcast of the show at danproftshow.com. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. And um, uh, should we be as encouraged as conservatives as uh, some are suggesting by what the left was unable to accomplish at the ballot box on November 3rd? And as well as what uh, President Trump was able to. A lot of ink I've seen spilt over the fact that not only did President Trump increase his vote, as we talked about earlier in the program with Matthew Continenti, I mean, 71 million. Joe Biden, most votes for a presidential ticket in history, true. And second most, Donald Trump, the nature of this uh, rather remarkable turnout, particularly in certain states, which is uh, another discussion. But also because Trump increased, despite uh, being uh, labeled the grand wizard of the KKK for four years by the media, by academicians, by the elites that control all of our civic and cultural institutions, he increased his percentage of the black vote, mainly through more support from black men, uh, by 50 percent, from about 8 percent to 12 percent, according to exit polling, increased his percentage of the Latino vote into the low 30s as well. The only cohort uh, he saw a decline in, actually, was that of, ironically, white men, where he supposedly was uh, singularly focused. Not the case. Uh, as a columnist for Spiked Online, Anaya Folarin Iman writes, it turns out the biggest challenge to left race identitarianism hasn't come from a liberal intelligentsia engaged in the niceties of open debate and discussion. No, it has come from the electorate. It has come from small d democratic politics. Uh, maybe. Uh, I mean, that that's true, especially with what we've talked about uh, a bit, the upset victories and particular House races combined with defeat of ballot initiatives like the uh, effort to repeal 209 in California. But is uh, small D Democratic wins enough to stop the onslaught of the Marxist left? For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Nathaniel Blake. Senior contributor to the Federalist, thefederalist.com. Nathaniel, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you very much for having me. So, um, yeah, I, I can see the um, uh, the the surprising uh, performance of Republicans, uh, the pushback against identitarian politics, the expressions like the ballot initiative I mentioned in California. But I mean, I, I go back to say, well, look how much progress they made culturally by not having the White House and not having the Senate. Uh, over the, for the last four years uh, with a, a per, you know, a passive, appeasing White House, uh, despite those defeats at the ballot box, can't those same Marxists make even more progress in the next four years? Well, I think they certainly will. On my recent column talking about some of this fallout, I said they're going to try to use what powers they have culturally, what powers they have through the executive branch. But I do think conservatives should be heartened 
by the fact that their legislative agenda is going to be stalled. Mm -hmm. Uh, The Democrats are going to have a very slim House majority, and their remaining moderate members are going on record angry and afraid of what happens to them when they get tarred with the leftist brush of AOC and the squad and the Democrats' more radical wing. And then in the Senate, it looks, pending runoffs in Georgia, like Republicans will probably hold the Senate, which means that anything that Pelosi and Biden want to get through will have to go through Mitch McConnell. So that is still a significant victory for conservatives because we are, by nature, a little more comfortable with gridlock, a little more comfortable with things staying as they are rather than being radically remade according to the left's agenda. So, I mean, the, the, so ostensibly the argument here is, and, and uh, Joe Manchin was making it uh, essentially on, uh, on behalf of Republicans, although he's trying to shore up the uh, the water that Democrats are taking on, saying things like uh, ending the filibuster, packing the Supreme Court, uh, the massive Green New Deal, those are DOA in the Senate. Yeah, and as you point out, he's probably trying to help those Democratic Senate candidates in the Georgia runoffs by making it seem like, okay, it'll be moderate even if they win. But I do think Joe Manchin's a guy who is, well, a Democrat. He's not an AOC Democrat. Um, So I think that he's telling the truth. He's not going to go for a radical agenda. And again, I don't want to pretend that the left will not make gains here. They will, and we're going to have to fight them legally, culturally, and so on. But it was heartening that after all these polls predicting massive blowouts, Republicans were going to get trounced, and progressives were already gloating about all the things they were going to do. It's not happening. There's not going to be court packing. There's not going to be an end to the filibuster. There's not going to be any sort of Green New Deal. So that, that is encouraging to me. Uh, and I want to uh, pick up when we come back on what that encouragement might translate into with respect to Republican activism. Should we going to get more leadership on some of these cultural issues from Republican office holders? More with Nathaniel Blake, senior contributor to The Federalist, Federalist.com, right after that. The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. We're speaking with Nathaniel uh, Nathaniel Blake. He's a senior contributor to thefederalist.com. And we were talking about, um, in many respects, the surprising performance, at least uh, as per the prognosticators of the Republican Party and the, the uh, results being, particularly with the likelihood that uh, Senate majority is maintained and Mitch McConnell remains your Senate majority leader, that uh, the Jacobin revolution will not quite go as advertised. You write to, in your piece at uh, the Federalist, uh, Nathaniel, your piece, if Republicans hold the Senate, leftists will be the hardest hit, that socialism, cultural revolution and riots are not popular. But as anyone who understands the annals of world history knows, as you certainly do, they don't need to be popular in terms of 50 percent plus one. They just need to be motivated and they need to face relatively uh, light opposition and mostly in the form of uh, disagreement, but appeasement. 
And that's sort of what it's been so far, I would argue. I mean, outside of sort of Chicago, I mean, uh, conservative uh, think circles. And so when it comes because of these election results, I guess the big question is uh, because critical race theory policies were beaten back because uh, some of the the more aggressive identitarians who want to defund the police and transform America, Black Lives Matter and the like, because they were beaten back at the ballot box. Will we see more Republican leadership uh, in addition, uh, more Republican leadership on these issues beyond those in the chattering class in conservative circles? I hope so. I think these are winning issues. I think these are actually issues where Republicans can, in many cases, make inroads with minority voters. You were just talking about that a few minutes ago. And I think cultural Marxism, cultural leftism is not that popular with a lot of working and middle class minority voters who want the same things other Americans want. They want to raise their family peacefully, safely. They want a job that they can go to with a decent wage and earn earn money and be respected in their communities, go to church, all of that things that everyone wants, really, unless they're sort of enthralled to some radical ideology that says to do something else. But there's a huge overlap there that I think Republicans can exploit. And I think there are some politicians uh, who are realizing that, that if they want to talk about these themes, they will be unifying across racial lines in a way that racial pandering isn't. Yeah. You know, I, I think that's right. Here's my fear. They're going to look at these numbers. And here, these are some initial numbers, but you know, they're directionally going to be correct. In 2016, Trump won the suburbs by five points and independence by six. According to the exit polling, he lost the suburbs by three this time around and independence by 14. And they're, you're going to have some in the Republican Party look at this and you know what they're going to do. They're going to say we got to be the party of the suburbs and to be the party of the suburbs. That means we have to countenance and cater to unhinged hate has no home here sentimentalists uh, and uh And so we can't take a hard line on the noxious critical race theory uh, indoctrination training in the schools or in corporate boardrooms. We we can't go after Black Lives Matter, not because uh, anybody disagrees about Black Lives Mattering, but because we disagree about Marxist policies and cultural transformation uh, along Marxist lines based on race rather than income, really. Uh, You know, that that, that's where I'm, I'm worried Republicans are going to be uh, reticent to make those overtures because they're going to try to play for these voters that, frankly, they can't get. Well, I think that is a concern, and I think the danger is in conflating a smaller subset of upscale, educated, white suburban voters who have, in many cases, I'm afraid, started to make this sort of political leftism kind of a substitute religion, yes. a substitute way of explaining what's wrong with the world, how to fix it, all of those problems that religion would traditionally address. But they're still a fairly small subset of suburban voters. There's a lot of suburban voters who, A, are not white, mm-hmm. and B, who are not that interested in this identity politics, cultural Marxism approach, but instead would be happy to vote for Republicans who oppose it. Um, they might be a bit turned off by some of President Trump's personal excesses, uh, the tweeting, some of the uh, lack of honesty at times, et cetera. But 
it's interesting if you look at the thing where in a lot of these places, Republican candidates did pretty well, sometimes running ahead of Trump. So I think if they can bring those themes together, some of that traditional Republican strength in the suburbs, along with opposition to the most radical parts that are not really the suburban base, except a few, but are really just this sort of particular urban elite. Right. I mean, no question. No, there's no question. And um, yeah, so that's it's what they don't understand about the suburbs, that nuance that you're describing that uh, they need to understand. And something else they don't understand about Latinos, they need to understand. Uh, Gerald Cadava, Geraldo Cadava, history professor at Northwestern, actually has a piece in The Atlantic, how Trump grew his support among Latinos. And he writes the political beliefs of these voters, Latino voters. And this is, you know, sort of general, more general than it should be, Mm -hmm. because there's a lot under the term Latinos. But nonetheless, um, the political beliefs of these voters deeply held and sincere. Trump understood what motivated his Latino supporters, economic individualism, religious liberty and law and order. And he made sure they knew he did understand those deeply held beliefs that they have and uh, spoke directly to them without apology or without pandering that word you used earlier, which is an important one. Um, So so it's going to have to be something where um, Republicans also understand playing identity politics the way the left does with Latino voters or black voters or any other group. That's not the play. The play is to speak sincerely to their sincere beliefs. I think that's absolutely right. And yeah, that article's it's a generalization, but it's fairly accurate, I think. When you decided. And 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 you know, and maybe what we'll have too for um the DC Republican Party is some additional examples in the midterms around the country, the way that DeSantis and Ducey provided examples of growing that support among Latino voters in Arizona and uh, in, in Florida and Arizona respectively, that encourage, you know, more of let's let's uh you know, replicate and scale what maybe some of our successful governors are doing. That is exactly right in how we should approach it. Texas, again, looking at some of those counties down by the border that are overwhelmingly Latino and went for Trump. See what works there. Right, Rio Grande Valley and elsewhere. Yeah, absolutely. Nathaniel Blake, senior contributor to the Federalist, Federalist.com. Nathaniel, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Take care. The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the show. And as we close out this Tuesday edition, which is the week for me, John Hinderaker, our friend from Powerline Blog, will be uh, filling in the rest of the week. I've had enough. Now I, I'm taking a little break. So uh, John Hindraker, always great. So enjoy him uh, marshalling the show while I'm gone. I'm sure we'll have great guests as well. But let's end with a positive story. This is a great one. It's the story of Chris Nickick from uh, Maitland, Florida. As Chris Nickick ran the final yard toward the finish line of Ironman Florida Saturday, the 21-year-old from Maitland kept stopping to hug family and friends, cheering him from the sidelines. Not only was he about to make history as the first athlete with Down syndrome to claim the title of Ironman, completing a consecutive 2.4-mile swim, 112-mile bike ride, 26.2-mile run, he carved out a few stolen moments to celebrate it. This is, and his hour, his official time, 16 hours, 46 minutes, 9 seconds. That's uh, great for any athlete. He uh, said in a Zoom call, 
the doctors and experts said I couldn't do anything. So I said, doctors, experts, you need to stop doing this to me. You're wrong. <laughs> no, the tyranny of the experts. Oh, gosh, how much have we talked about that during the COVID era? Yes. Uh, if only we had the um, indomitable spirit of Chris Nickick. His father, Nick, said much the same. From the time he was born, we were told it by everyone. He'd never do anything or amount to anything or be able to accomplish anything, being able to tie his own shoes other than that. We believed them for the longest time. His first surgery to repair tools, two holes in his heart was five months old. He needed a walker at three. He attended seven schools from kindergarten to fifth grade, where his parents finally found a small private school willing to take an inclusive approach. Began swimming at his, uh, as a kid in his parents' backyard pool at age 16 and um, could barely swim a lap or run 100 yards without stopping. But in January of 2018, two years later, signed up for a newly launched triathlon program through Special Olympics Florida. Began with a series of group training sessions on the bike, on running trails, in the open water. Two local uh, race organizations soon included Special Olympics divisions within their triathlons. And uh, one of those open open water training sessions, a one-kilometer swim at an Orlando lake, first-timers who make the distance sign their names on a wall. Chris World Champ is what Nickick wrote, which led to a discussion with his dad, who's also a swimmer, about doing triathlons and eventually an Ironman. Nick said, I realize why not? Why can't he do an Ironman? His dad about Chris. So I gave him a piece of paper and I said, why don't you write down your dreams? Tell me what you want out of life. Listen to this. This is fantastic. He didn't have to ponder long. Chris didn't. He wants his own house. He wants his own car. And he wants to marry, quote, a smoking hot blonde from Minnesota like my mom. Sure. Who doesn't want that, Chris? Uh, <laughs> His father says the smoking hot blonde is conceptual, not literal. But uh, Chris repeated at least once a day during the two years of training six. It's good to have a goal to work towards. Anyway, uh, Iron Man Chris Nickick from Maitland, Florida, 21-year-old gentleman with Down syndrome. What an inspirational story. And as I said, uh, a testament to the indomitability of the human spirit and also the value of every human life. Every human life. Thank you for joining us on this installment of the Dan Prof Show. Enjoy the rest of the week with my friend John Hindraker, and I'll catch you back here on Monday. This is the Dan Prof Show.